0: Turn please to Philippians in chapter 3, I want to read uh, verses 1 through 16, to read them again, if you were here last week, we read them last week, we'll read them next week. I issue the same proviso, that is, that this is a great passage, so please pay great attention to it, Philippians in chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, upon finding that, please pray with me. Father, now we come to your word. I pray you give us eyes to see, ears to hear. You would enable us, Father, to hear it well. And I pray that your purpose for this passage will have its perfect work in us. And I pray that that work would be to bring us not only greater understanding, but great grace so that this passage would apprehend us at the deepest level of our lives. And thus it will be true in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, that I may, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, I tried to give us a little bit of an overview, at least, of the first uh, nine or ten verses here, but I want to go back again this week with an eye towards us seeing that this really applies to us. By that I mean that it's easy to take these great and lofty passages where Paul makes these what appear to be tremendously exaggerated statements and understand that they're not tremendously exaggerated statements. This isn't hyperbole. This is real. When Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We're to say that as well. You and I are to be able to say, whatever I counted as gain, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Not only that. We need to be able to say, I count, not counted, past, but count, continuing, right now in the here and now in the present indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my lord we need to be able to say that at this moment in time i am presently counting he says everything as loss because of the surpassing worth worth of knowing Christ Jesus my lord can you say that not only that but paul says for his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes uh, from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Can you say that? Now perhaps you can't say I've suffered the loss of all things, but can you say I'm willing to suffer the loss of all things, of anything, and count all things as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ and being found in Him. You say that. Do you understand yourself to be one who doesn't have a righteousness in yourself, but yet have been a recipient of the righteousness that comes from God through faith? Can you say that? You see, I don't know about you, but when I read these passages, they seem so lofty. It seems so exaggerated that I sort of, you know, just kind of sing through them and they're just wonderful. But then I have to step back and say, is real this isn't hyperbole this isn't exaggeration this isn't a figure of speech this is real can I say it can I also say this that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead can I say that about me now Paul begins this chapter of course as we said last Sunday he begins with the word finally not meaning in conclusion but this is where he's led to and now he's about to give them the command he's wanted to give them all along, which is to rejoice in the Lord. They're to rejoice in the Lord. That's a bit odd, coming from a man who's in prison, coming from a man whose reputation is being diminished and being being hurt by the fact that he's in prison and being hurt by very ones who should love him, other preachers. And yet Paul's saying, Rejoice in the Lord. I'm commanding you to have joy because Paul himself, even in the midst of that situation, has joy. And he's telling that to a group of people. He knows are suffering for their faith as well. They're suffering some in the very same ways as he that is in prison. And he knows even they're not rejoicing because they're just bickering with each other, many of them, and he's saying, stop that. And here's what you're to do instead, have joy. You're to rejoice in the Lord. This is to be the the very countenance of your life, is to rejoice. that it doesn't mean that they're to have a silly grin on their face all the time. But in fact, they're to be of such hearts they're to feel whatever feeling, good feeling, that comes with knowing that you belong to God and that God is with you and that you're secure in Him. And in any situation, in any circumstances, whatever feeling that is, Paul would say that's joy, or should be rejoicing, it's a good feeling regardless of the circumstances you're in. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. And of course, that only comes... I'm doing this quickly because this is a review. That only comes by way of knowing that you're secure in God because your righteousness is not yours, but Christ's. Paul said that he had been cooking his own books. What he thought was profit was loss. And what he thought was loss was profit. And on the road to Damascus, that all became clear to him. He thought that what was his righteousness was the fact that he had been circumcised on the eighth day, which, by the way, was a good thing for his family to do for him at that moment in time. But it's not so hot now. But I'm glad I'm not a rabbi. But uh, um, even though I make babies cry when I baptize them, let's not even go there. The um, circumcised on the eighth day, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? He was a law keeper. He was a Pharisee, which was the best kind of law keeper. He had done all of that. And that to him was his righteousness. And by that I mean his rightness before God. Righteousness means to be right. To be in right standing. To be in right relationship. To be right. For instance, in baseball, a perfect game is righteous to a pitcher. That's righteousness. That's the standard. Anything else than that really is unrighteousness to a Student getting 100% on an exam is, is righteousness. That's the right standard. If you're going to really be right in relationship to your professor and in the relationship to the material, you should get 100%. That's righteousness. Anything less than that is unrighteousness. We have a bunch of unrighteous graduates today, no doubt. But that's unrighteousness. And so in relationship to God, righteousness is being right in relationship to God, in accordance with His standard. Not our standard, but His. God demands His best, not ours. And so righteousness, in God's eyes, is His righteousness. And God's righteousness really is Himself. He is righteous. Now, he says there's a bunch of reflections of His righteousness. For instance, the law. Is a reflection. The moral law is a reflection of God's righteousness. It reveals to us what it means to be righteous, obeying the law, but not just externally, but from the heart. God sees into the heart, and Paul realized himself that even though he might be able to keep the external law that does not kill anybody and so forth and so on, really in his heart, he wanted to, and so he got his. It was his heart that convicted him ultimately. We see Jesus as the exact representation, the author of Hebrews tells us, of the righteousness of God, of God's radiance. So we look to Jesus. And Paul realized on that day on the road to Damascus that what he had thought was his rightness before God, that he had met God's standard, he had missed it completely. It wasn't righteousness at all because it didn't reflect God. In fact, in Romans in chapter 3, for instance, as Paul says that we've all sinned, notice how he puts it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, sin is falling short of God's glory, His gloriousness, that which is true of Him, to fall short of His righteousness, of His holiness. And Paul realized, you see, that everything he thought was gain is now lost for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his own righteousness. He was secure now because he knew that his righteousness came not from God, I'm sorry, came not from himself, himself, but rather from God. It came through faith in Christ. It was Christ's righteousness, not his own. And it really is. Let's take a stroll down righteousness lane here for a moment. Turn to Romans in chapter 1, in verse 16. Romans 1, 16. I just want to show you this so you know that there's righteousness in Christ and know that our righteousness comes through faith in him, not of ourselves. Because you see, Paul thought that his circumcision was righteousness. But it wasn't. Because Paul said, since I've been circumcised, since we did that, then I'm righteous. That checks off one of God's standards. But that really wasn't why circumcision was really given. Circumcision was given so that people would look to God. And they'd be reminded that there's a promise of God that says that there's a righteousness that comes by faith, just like in Abraham's case. And you see, Paul thought he was righteous because he had observed all the feasts. And it was good for him to observe all the feasts, feasts but not by checking them off, saying, look what I've done, but to observe the feast so that he could know of God's righteousness and the righteousness that comes from God. So that when he celebrated Passover, he would think, oh yes, God is the one who delivers. I must trust him. When he celebrated the Feast of Booths, he should say, oh yes, it's God who provides. I should trust him. These weren't given to us so he could check them off and say, I've done it, therefore I'm righteous. But to be reminded of the grace of God and his righteousness. And even in the sacrifices, he wasn't to sort of check them off, yes, I've made all the sacrifices, I've been to the Day of Atonement, it's all done. No, he was to see in those sacrifices the very need for the righteousness of God. And so now notice how Paul puts it in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, that is the gospel is, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You could translate that little line, the righteous shall live by faith this, faith, this way as well. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. The righteous shall live by faith. The one who is by faith righteous shall live. There's a righteousness of God. Not only the righteousness of God that he requires, but the righteousness of God that he gives. And it's that righteousness of which the gospel speaks. Romans 3, verse 10. We read this, None is righteous, no, not one. That's a problem. If it's righteousness that is necessary, and no one is righteous, if no one is right with God, that is a problem. But then in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law just keeps reminding us we need the righteousness of God. If we already had, if we already were righteous, we wouldn't need it. But since we aren't, we need the righteousness of God. So Paul goes on. But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness of God is given. It's a gift for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is, declared to be righteous, right with God, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be be received by faith. So God says, Here it is. My righteousness is in Christ. Chapter 5 and verse 17. Paul is making the comparison between Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience. Adam's unrighteousness and Christ's righteousness. He says, If, because of one man's trespass, that is, Adams, if because of one's man's, one man's trespass, death reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. This is a free gift, this righteousness. It can't be earned. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30. Paul is writing again. He says, "He that is God He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Of course, he's our righteousness, not ours. If it was our righteousness, Paul would say, boast in yourself. Take confidence in yourself. But it's not ours, it's his. And then finally, Second Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, He, that is God, for our sake, He made Him, that is Jesus, for our sake, God made Jesus, the Father made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see this? foundational, important. If you don't know this, if it isn't true of you, you can't rejoice because you won't know in every given circumstance that you really do belong to God, that you really are righteous in His sight. But this passage teaches us Christ had no sin, but our sin was laid upon Him. We had no righteousness, but His righteousness was laid upon us. And not to be crude about this, but that's a tremendous deal for us. He took our sin. We get his righteousness. So Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith, that is, through faith in Christ. So he knows he's justified. He knows he stands before God forgiven and accepted by him. That's crucial. If you don't know that about yourself, you can't rejoice in the Lord. You haven't really received the great benefit that he brings. And it comes by faith. Paul says, this is why he says it this way, in verse 7, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That is, his faith was expressed at that moment where he saw all the things that he thought were righteousness for him, he saw that as a loss, all the way down to rubbish. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version which is a little bit British by its translators. So rubbish, if we were Americans, would be translated for whatever word you can think of, though you may not be able to think of it in church, whatever words you think of that means filthy, dirty. Right? To quote Hannah Boomer, yucky, okay? Whatever word that you... Th- that's the- so that's what he counted it he said no I'm not going to depend on that I'm going to take no confidence as he put it earlier in the flesh that is in what I can do apart from God I'm not going to put any confidence there that's what it means to be secure and so I'm going to receive from God this gift of right standing through Christ all right i was very deliberate with that I don't know quite why but very deliberate so listen and so he said that's what I did my faith was expressed by counting that as loss now when we count something as something. It, he means I'm considering it that way. I understand it to be that way. For instance, if, if somebody comes and smiles at you, you're likely to count that, to consider that as a hello. If someone sends you flowers, well, I don't know about us guys, but if someone sends a woman flowers, she normally counts that as anywhere from a thank you to a sign of affection. She considers that if, If you're on a diet, when I'm dieting, a Snickers bar to me must be considered the enemy. I count that. I count that as the enemy. Um, That's how I think of it. I must think. So Paul has got a new understanding. He says, I thought this was righteousness, but it's not. This is righteousness. Christ. My faith isn't righteousness, but my faith enables me to grab a hold of the righteousness that is a gift that is given in Christ Jesus. But he doesn't stop there, notice. In verse 8 he said, Indeed I count, present tense. He so we went from having counted one point in time. Now he's still counting, still considering. He says, This is how I think about everything. Notice. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Then he says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. So he's considering, he's seeing everything. You have to ask in a minute, what's that everything? He's considering everything is loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he says, For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. What all things? All things. And count them, what them, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, The reason I pause here and, and, and again, become very deliberate about what what the the everything is and what the all things is and what the them is here is because I want to make sure I'm doing this. I want to make sure that I'm counting the right things as loss that I'm suffering the loss of the right things and that I'm seeing the right things as rubbish. Because there's a number of things in my life, quite frankly, that I, I don't view presently necessarily as rubbish, like my wife. I don't think it'd be great if I went home this afternoon and said, you're rubbish. (laughs) You'll know if I do that. I'll be the guy. I'll be the guy walking around with a bandaged head um, if I'm walking around at all. But but, but you get the sense, in some sense, does Paul mean all things? Wife, children, husband, job. Life is rubbish. What's he getting at here? Number of things. All right, number one. Clearly, the everything, the all things to them, means everything that I once thought gained. Everything that I once thought was righteousness to me. I now understand to be lost. I now understand to be rubbish. Those things weren't helpful at all. I once thought my circumcision, and the family that I was born into, and, and the law that I kept... And all of that was my righteousness. But now I realize it's not. So I count that as loss. In fact, I'm willing and I have suffered the loss of all that. I don't even refer to that in a positive way anymore. I don't even use that to my advantage anymore. I don't even talk about those things in in positive ways for fear I'll be confusing to people. I don't want to make it look like I'm putting my hope or my confidence in those things at all. I never play, you know, the Hebrew card. I never play the circumcision card. I never play that when I'm out. Uh, to try to get the favor of people. I, I just count that now as loss. I want people to understand that wasn't helpful to me. It only confused me. It made me follow the wrong path thinking that I could achieve righteousness on my own. So I count it as loss. I suffered as loss. I understand it to be rubbish. I don't know what that is in your life, whatever it is that you once had thought was your righteousness, that you could go to God with and say, you know, God, uh, you know, I, 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 I have a very spiritual grandmother. You know? And it's funny how many people are depending upon that. It's funny how many people are depending on the fact that there's somebody in your family, someone in your acquaintance, you know a religious person, you know a Christian, and so you figure that's going to help you. No. Or you might say, well, I was baptized. No, baptism only helps you. If it causes you to look at the promise of God and to receive it by faith, it doesn't help you otherwise any more than circumcision did. I've been to church on average 43 times a year. So you've missed nine if that's the case. But it only helps you if you're going by faith looking to receive the righteousness of God. Well, I've tithed. I'm a preacher and I'm telling you that won't help you. That's not righteousness. It, it's good. But that's not righteousness. Okay? That's not righteousness. It only means anything at all if you're doing it by faith, understanding that you've received righteousness from God and it's only Him that's enabling you. So whatever it is that you counted as gain, certainly it's loss, it's rubbish, it's unhelpful. But I think there's something else too that Paul is after here when he says everything and all things. Because I think he's making a comparison He's saying, compared to knowing Christ, nothing else compares. Nothing else is on the same page. For instance, if if Karen could could value the value of being married to me, let's say she let's say, let's say she could quantify that, and she quantified it as a million. Well, let's say a billion. Um, <laughs> and she said it's, a, it's worth a billion, whatever a billion but it's worth a billion. And then someone came to her and said, okay, can you quantify what it means to know Christ? Start with a billion. If she spent the rest of her life 24-7 adding zeros to that billion, she would never get to a quantity high enough to exhibit the value of knowing Christ. But at the end of her days, if you took that number and compared it to a billion, a billion would look, like not much. And so Paul's saying, you know, when I look at everything, if I've counted my righteousness, what I thought was righteousness, is loss, but, but now you see, when I look at everything, I, I even consider that, in comparison to Christ, loss, rubbish, no matter how great it is. And I think if we look at a couple of sayings of Jesus, we see that as well. Turn to Matthew in chapter 10, And verse thirty seven Matthew ten verse thirty seven Jesus says this I'll give you a second to get there Matthew ten thirty seven he says Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see he's saying in comparison to me, I'm the one that you that, that you really, 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 really love. The love that you have for me is in a sense even a deeper, greater quality than your love for anyone else, even your mother, even your father, even your children, even your spouse. Jesus says this more dramatically as Luke has it in Luke in chapter 14. Luke 14 and verse 26. Jesus says this let me begin with verse 25 so you get a little of the context he says now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them you'll find that Jesus better than anyone knew how to preach down a crowd and the crowds got too big and he thought too perhaps superficial he began to get deeper with them in verse 26 he says if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple Say, hey, Jesus, surely you don't mean to hate my parents, hate my spouse, hate my children. And in one sense, the answer, of course, would be no. He commands us to love all of the above. But his point is one of comparison. He says, compared to the love that you have for me, it will be as if you're hating them. In fact, if ever it comes between me and your wife or your husband, your son or your daughter, even your own wife. You're to follow me. You're to hate that, if you will, in comparison language, and follow me. And so when Paul said he suffered the loss of all things, he he did. He suffered many and was in the process of suffering all kinds of loss for the sake of knowing Christ, for the sake of following Christ. He turned his back on comfort. He turned his back on safety. He turned his back on being able to earn money from ministry he turned his back on taking a believing wife as the other apostles did he turned his back uh, to flogging and thus gave up even the right to have a back that wasn't ripped to shreds he gave the right to all of that he suffered the loss of those normal kinds of things because compared to following Christ none of that was worth keeping So certainly we suffer the loss of all things. We count loss all things. We count as rubbish all those things we once thought righteousness because it's not. But also we view all things differently now. In comparison to Christ, He is the best. He is the greatest. And we would even be willing to suffer the loss of all things. In fact, some have suffered the loss of deep things to follow Christ. Some have suffered the loss of their families to follow Christ. And you know what that means because your families think you're crazy in following Christ or they think you're in a cult or they think that, worse, they've disowned you because you've followed Christ and you're willing to suffer the loss of all things because knowing Christ is of surpassing worth greater than even this relationship. Some people suffer the loss of possessions greatly to follow Christ because you have a new view of possessions and you view them now differently than before. It's really not worth it to keep if it's going to keep me from following Christ. If this is going to encumber me from following Christ and if this is going to help someone else follow Christ, I'm willing to give it to them so that they can follow Christ because the most important thing is to follow Christ. That's what's of surpassing value and worth. And so Paul says, I view all things differently. In fact, we'll all suffer the loss of all things earthly. but as we do we must never stop rejoicing And the only way that we can start uh, the only way we can continue to rejoice in the midst of suffering the loss of all things whether it be our dignity whether it be our health whether it be our wealth whether it be friends who die before us whether it be friends or family members who die before us even prematurely and it pains us but even in the midst of that And it may be that we lose our money. Whatever that is, we suffer the loss of all kinds of things in the course of life. But since we view them differently, as long as we have Christ, he says, I can suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in comparison to having Christ. And so you see the necessity, the value of being firm in Him, not having a righteousness of your own, but having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. He says, be solid." Not only that, you see, we do view things differently. And so now it frees us, since we count all things as loss, to treat them as they deserve to be treated. So a husband who understands the value of knowing Christ and in a relative sense counts his wife as loss can now love her. Because she's no threat. She's no danger. She's no danger to him to think that she's righteousness. Righteousness he now can turn and love her just as Christ said which is righteous which is right which is good you don't need to go into your boss on Monday morning and say this job is rubbish you can go in and count it as loss and therefore it's no threat to you and so then you can go in and do a really good job because in doing a really good job you're not walking away from doing your really good job saying now that's righteousness to me No, you count it as lost in that regard. And you say, I'm going to go in and do a really good job so I can confirm the righteousness of Christ in me. So now everything takes on a different look. Everything is counted differently. Everything is considered differently. Paul says that's what it means to live by faith. Not having a righteousness of my own, but having a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. And then he goes on to say this. Notice. He says, here's the way my life is going to work now. I want to follow the very pattern of Christ. You see, Jesus came and he humbled himself and was crucified and then resurrected. And Paul says, I want to take that life except in reverse, notice he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to start with the resurrection life. I want to start with the power of the resurrection, he says. And then I want to go on and share in his suffering." And then, so that I may become like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? Well, that's next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that we would see everything differently through the lens of knowing Christ. That anything that we would even think might commend us to you as righteousness that we would see now as trash. But even so, Father, that we would see everything differently in relationship to Christ and know that he is of surpassing value, that nothing compares to him, and therefore nothing need impede me from following him and in every relationship. I can follow him without threat because I know that my righteousness comes not from me but from you for it's Christ's righteousness that I receive by faith. Therefore, we can rejoice. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you there will be elders available to pray in the office area. Please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is, My righteousness is from God. Hallelujah. I want us to keep saying that through this Philippians 3, so we get it in our heads. And if you do understand that your righteousness is from God, then the proper response is, Hallelujah. For it is your joy. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him was able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy, to our only wise God and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, my righteousness is from God.